You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. John Perkins has joined us on other occasions, as he does again this evening. John is author of Economic Hitman, Hoodwinked, The Secret History of the American Empire, Shape-Shifting, Techniques for Global and Personal Transformation, Psychonavigation, Techniques for Travel Beyond Time, and other books as well. Some of them are Inner Traditions, which you can find at innertraditions.org. John is a wonderful example of how our inner personal landscape can change and then change our lives, the same way the outer of the world looks a lot like the inner of our worlds. How do we then move from the personal inner landscape to the global world, and how can each of us contribute? How do our dreams, our intentions, and actions shape and shift the world around us? Traveling to learn from shamans of numerous indigenous cultures, John Perkins brings to his audiences an awareness that I believe is precious, reminding us that the world out there really does reflect the inner world, and the inner world really does offer us insights and guidance for transforming not only ourselves, but our shared physical and the spiritual worlds we're all part of. John Perkins' own life is truly an example of shape-shifting, of turning, of changing, of transforming that which we all do on our spiritual journeys in a lifetime. Thank you again for joining us, John. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, when we've been together before, we've talked about your books, Economic Hitman and Hoodwinked, and sort of the other life of John Perkins, the before the John Perkins now. How would you describe to our audience kind of what happened in your career life to send you down this path that now really involves this beautiful psycho-navigation, the shamanic world, and other very rich spiritual pathways? Well, yeah, I'll get into that. And, and I also, uh, before the show's over, I want to tell you what a, what a role you play in my new book, you personally. So we'll get into that in a few minutes. All right. All right. Um, you know, so as I was what we call an economic hitman, I was actually chief economist at this major international consulting firm, um, at, at the beginning, I, I thought the things that we were doing were the right things for creating a better world. I thought that by uh, investing billions of dollars from the World Bank into the infrastructure projects like power plants and industrial parks in, in developing countries, um, you were really helping those countries. But as time went on, what I saw was that this was a big scam. Uh, it was a way of getting the country so deep into debt that they would have to sell off their oil or other valuable resources to our corporations at very cheap prices without any social or, or environmental regulations, and that they would never be able to pay off the debts, and that the money would actually never go to them. These billions of dollars never went to the country. They went to our own companies to build, to build these infrastructure projects. And at the beginning, I thought this was the right way to do things because that's what you learn in business school. That's what the World Bank says. And economic models show that it does help the economy to grow. What the models don't show and what I began to realize as time went on is that all this was really doing was helping a bunch of very rich families in these countries as well as our corporations get more, get richer and richer and more and more powerful. Meanwhile, the poor and the middle classes were getting poorer and poorer. But it took me a while to realize that. And once I realized it, then I, I realized that I, I had to get out, and that's when the trans, like, transformation 
really began to happen. How old were you at that point? Well, I went into that business when I was 26 years old. I was in for 10 years. So it was during that period of my basically late late 20s and, and early to mid-30s that this was going on. And, you know, I've been through all the schooling. I've been in the Peace Corps. I've been in Ecuador for three years. So I've been around a bit. But I was pretty naive about the way the business world operates. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, you know, most people are in that business because business schools make people naive. Right? They, don't really, they don't really teach you what the real world is about out there. Right. No, they, they teach you to take part in the models that already exist, and the models are hierarchical, exploitive, you know, oligarchies, something I covered ad nauseum for almost 20 years of my life and 10 years every day of the week. So, you know, we're on the same page from a different vantage point. And I always found it a challenge as a person with a deep spiritual calling and yet also a political and economic astuteness to bring those two um, aspects of myself into play in a way that was balanced, which is one of the things actually that has intrigued me about sort of looking at you as one of these adventures who has been able to still comment. I I follow what you write, and I was reading a recent piece you were writing about, you know, our bad habits, and then you list Iraq and Cuba and kind of once again, what is a war economy for and why are we doing this? Yeah, well, you, you, and that's what I wanted to tell you is that, you know, you, and the last time we talked, you kind of coined the phrases for me of a death economy and a life economy. And I'm using that a lot in my new book and, and these days, and I'll be crediting you with that in, in the new book. But, you know, that, that really comes down to the crux of it, that what we're understanding today is that we've created a global catastrophe economically for most of the people of the world. It's an absolute failure. It's a success for the for for a handful of people. You know, the 85 individuals who have more assets than half the half the half the world, and if and other people, it seems like a success for them. Ultimately, it won't work for them either. Uh, but the fact is, it's a, it's an abject failure in in every other way. And we you know we've really created this death economy, which is based on warfare or the threat of it. And ravaging the earth, tearing up the very resources upon which our economy depends. Exactly. You know, I've I've been studying um, the white spirit animals of the world. I have an interest in. They all came to me all mass in a single vision and said, "Write our story." So there's the white tiger and the white lion and the white buffalo and the white elephant, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all like um, epicenters of ecosystems around the world. They all are deeply part of shamanic traditions in their regions in which they exist, and they all speak to prophecy of this transformational time period. And interestingly enough, most of the lore and mythology associated with them has to do with a prior glacial age, and that it's heralding such major earth changes, you know, we're in this interglacial period, and that we're moving into a glacial age. So if we could sort of shift gears to this beautiful work you do as you travel the world now and helping people find their inner navigator, the way the shaman have for millennium. What is it when you say that somebody is practicing shamanic practice or somebody is shape-shifting? Well, there's a, there's a lot of answers to that question, Zahara. Uh, I, I think the simple one to start with is, is a definition, the simplest definition that, that I know for a shaman 
uh, that I like is is a woman or a man who journeys to other worlds. Um, you know, and you can say prayer is that, and meditation is that. You know, to, to just um, inspiration is that. And anybody who writes a book or a song or music is going is, is gathering information from other worlds. In any case, the shaman journeys to other worlds uh, and from and uses the energy, power, and wisdom from those worlds to affect change in this world. So, yeah, I, I think probably everybody journeys to other worlds, daydreaming, thinking, you know, mm-hmm. dreaming. Mm-hmm. You're going, going to another world. Um, and then there's, you know, priests and, and meditators and yogis and people who do that on a sort of a professional basis. But the shaman must always use the information that she or he gains, the energy, uh, the power from, from those journeys to affect change in this world. And people think of shamans as healers, and yes, a lot of them are, and so they affect change in their clients, um, but health, so trying to help them get get better. But the shamans throughout the world also have done a great deal of work on, on affecting change in environments and social attitudes amongst their people, their tribes, their clans. And so right now we're at a time in history where we really, really need this. And they talk about shape-shifting as occurring on three different levels. One is the the cellular, the, the, the biological level, you know, shamans shape-shifting into jaguars, which a lot of people have a hard time believing, but, you know, healing a wound is a cellular shape-shift. Getting cancer is a cellular shape-shift, and, and a lot of us know of people who've seen to have miraculous cures of cancer. That's the shape-shift. That's the cellular biological shape-shift. Then there's the personal shape-shifting, being more of who we most respect about ourselves, being a better writer, being a better, uh, you know, dancer, being a better spouse, whatever, uh, and getting rid of addiction, that's this personal, and then there's the institutional. And right now, and they all come together in, in many respects, but right now that institutional one is so important because around the planet, people are waking up. We're, we're, we're in this consciousness revolution where people are really waking up to the fact that this system just is, just is not working, <laughs> that we've got to change it, that the oceans are rising, the glaciers are melting, species are going extinct at incredibly fast rates, our economies are not working. People are waking up to that, and it means we need to change our institutions. We need to change our story, basically. When all of us look out at the world and we can see the the decimation, and certainly this show has been committed to talking about all the wonderful um, discoveries that have already been made, whether it's in sustainable energies or in biology, which is eco-housing or, you know, holistic healing, or as you speak of traveling to inner worlds, outer worlds, off planet, in planet, and and that truly it is a, a radical moment when sort of all the rivers come together within each one of us. But I think for everybody who has been working for change their whole lives, and I interview many activists who are eco-activists or social justice or political change agents, sometimes it's very difficult to find one's bearings while some things are coming apart trying to birth new things. And I thought perhaps as you do for some of your workshop attendants, you give people some other tools about these levels you've spoken of. So there's this biological level, there's the personal ourselves, there's the institutional. How does any one of us change ourselves? Well, I, I think, you know, first of all, we have, to rec- we have to recognize that we need to change and we want to change on an individual basis. You can't 
you can't change another person. You can't change yourself unless you realize that you need to change. There's got to be a, a motivation there. And that's true on the, on the social level, too, which is what we're, we are understanding as a species now, that we've, we've gone down the wrong path, or maybe it was the right path for a long time, but it needs to change now. Right. So first and, desire. And, right. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's about applying energy. So to recognize that everything is energy. You know, basically we're comprised of energy. You know, that science, scientists tell us that we're 99.999% air. A lot of people think water, but that's basically air, H2O. And they used to say that the other point zero 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 whatever one percent were subatomic particles. But now quantum physics say that that other point zero 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 one percent is is a probability of energy, and 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 how we direct that energy is is what's important. So we're we're mostly air, and then a little bit of probability of energy. What are we? We're where, where we choose to be, and where we direct our energies. And I think it's it's really important for people to understand if you're if you're angry, if you're upset, uh, if you're if you're feeling jealous, if you if you're feeling any of the what we call the negative emotions, to recognize the power in those. And if you're discouraged by what's going on in the world, recognize the power, and and to understand that that emotion is just energy. And now what's important is how do you direct it. You got it. Don't try to deny it. And, you know, people say I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be jealous. I want to be forgiving. Well, you know, okay, good. But but if you, the anger is there, the important thing is what do you do with it? So I'm incredibly angry. You know, and I'm, I'm, anybody that really sees what's going on in the world would, would has to feel angry. I'm incredibly angry at what my government and, and many of our corporations are doing in the world. And for many years I used that anger destructively and often self-destructively. It, it got the better of me. You burn out with that. But now I have a lot of fun with it. I'm having fun talking to you about it. Mm-hmm. I do workshops. I travel around the world. I write books. That's fun. I'm still angry. But the way I'm choosing to direct the energy is in a, is in a, a self-sustaining way. I'm not burning out. I'm having a lot of fun with it. I, I love my life these days. And the anger is still there, but I feel that I'm using it in productive ways. And I think that's a very important thing for people to understand, both on an individual and on a collective basis, that it's all about energy. If, if you know, if you're having a tough time in your relationship with your, you know, with your partner, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, whatever, um, how do you how do you direct that energy in a way that's going to accomplish what it is that will really be positive for everybody? Beautifully put. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, I want to talk some more about psychonavigation. Because the techniques, as you mentioned, you know, when people dream, everybody dreams. Not everybody remembers all their dreams, but everybody remembers some of their dreams and can sometimes tell the difference between just a personal dream, um, a dream that's premonitory, a dream that's a futuristic dream. And so we'll talk about how it is that imaging and imagination is so important. If you're just joining us, John Perkins, our guest, take a look at all of his books at www.johnperkins.org. Meet him someplace on the planet. He travels around in good stead. Hello, I'm Jason Gregory. I'm the author of The Science and Practice of Humility, The Path to Ultimate Freedom. You can find out all the information about me from www.jasongregory.org. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zoe Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. John Perkins joins us. Find out all about his travels, workshops, beautiful books, many of them published by Inner Traditions. We share a wonderful 
publisher, Ehud Sperling's outfit with a great group of men and women, www.johnperkins.org. In fact, while I mention Ehud Sperling, I saw that the two of you together convinced this beautiful um, gentleman from um, the Shuar Warrior. Is that how you say that? Shuar Warrior? Yes, that's right, Schwar. Schwar, warrior in Ecuador and Peru to go around collecting the stories of his peoples. Talk to us a bit about that. It's a wonderful undertaking. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, Ehud, the early the founder of Inuitisms, is a is a very old and dear friend of mine. Uh, and I think the first book of mine that he published was around 1987 or 88 in that area. Um, such rehab it, and then. He published Psychonavigation and, and uh, a couple of other books. And we went to the Amazon together a couple of times. He asked me to take him to meet people that I was writing about, and I did. And it was it was a fantastic experience. And, and Ehud himself got deeply involved and came up with this idea that uh, we might give uh, tape recorders, little handheld ones, to some of the younger Shua warriors, young men who would go out into the jungle, and they would go way off to uh, elders who no one had seen them. Some of them had never even met white men, uh, and talk to them in their native language, schwa, record it, uh, and then then they, they, the, the schwa would, the young schwa who spoke Spanish would simultaneously translate into the recorder back into English, and then we would translate it from uh, the, uh, excuse me, translate back into Spanish, mm-hmm. and then we. Then we would translate the Spanish to, to English. And so we, we collected this body of, of incredible stories and, and memories of uh, the elders who were, you know, some of them were over 100 years old, and it's in a book called Spirit of the Schwa, uh, which is published by Inner Traditions. It's just and beautiful. They, it, yeah, it was an amazing experience. And it was, it was actually very interesting from a personal standpoint because uh, at the time, my dad was retired, and he was a retired Spanish teacher. And so I actually had him translate from the from the Spanish to English. He wrote in longhand because he didn't use a computer. My daughter, who was 17 at the time, Jessica, then typed it up uh, on the computer. And then I would go back in and massage because my dad's translations were pretty dry, you know, pretty, just kind of straightforward. And I know the way that the schwa tell stories. They're oral traditionalists, and they tell stories with great beauty, you know, yeah. and, and, and emotion. And so I... Tried to put some of that back in, but it was very funny because they, they talked about some of their sexual uh, habits, which were, by our standards, quite bizarre and quite promiscuous, and about the use of sacred plants that we would call hallucinogenics. My dad was very conservative, and he would write these little notes knowing that his granddaughter was going to be reading all of this. He'd say, well, I don't quite believe that, but that's what he said, so I'm translating it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's, that's the point. You know, what's so interesting is the change that is happening. There, there are many millions of humans who have been practicing meditation, who have been doing far journeying, who have been doing collaborative, you know, building good, positive work. And there are others who have really just been trying to live a life, pay the mortgage, you know, take care of business, but may not have... Um, much belief about spirit and the spirit of the shuar, the wisdom from the last unconquered people of the Amazon, talks about the arutum or the life-giving spirit of nature. I don't know if I've pronounced it properly. It did, yes. That allows us to um, change ourselves. So you mentioned the key to change our story. 
Do you think that changing our story then changes the energy we draw to us? Give us some examples of how a person can do this effectively in their own life and how in the global sense, changing our story can literally change the way form, matter, energy manifests. Yes, well, I, I talked uh, in one of my books, uh, I think it's shape-shifting, about how I became deathly ill at one time when I was living with the Schwa in the Amazon. This is long before I would written any books. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the late 60s. And a, a shaman healed me. And the way he did that, actually, was taking me an all-night-long shamanic journey. And on that journey, I saw that I had grown up with a lot of attitude about hygiene. You had to wash your hands a lot. And I grew up in... You know, in, in New Hampshire, Yankee Calvinists, 300 years of Yankee Calvinists, we, we ate very basic foods, meat and potatoes, nothing very interesting. Now here I was living with a schwa who had never seen a bar of soap in their lives, and they ate some very peculiar foods, including they, people in the Amazon don't drink water because they know the rivers are filled with organic matter. And so they drink a kind of beer called chicha, which is generally made out of manioc root being chewed by women and spit. It's a spit beer, you know, then you, then you can mix that with water, and the alcohol kills the bacteria. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not, not very, you know, it doesn't sound very attractive to most of us. And it's a very strange food. And so what I saw on this shamanic journey was that, that the schwa themselves are very, very healthy. And, and they eat these foods and drink this beer. And so what I realized is that it was my mindset that was killing me, this attitude that every time I ate these foods or drank this beer, I heard a voice in the back of my mind saying, son, it'll kill you. It was mm-hmm. probably my mom speaking. And, and I realized that it was just a, a question of changing my mindset, changing attitude, changing the story. The old story was that sort of stuff is dangerous to your health. The story I had to take on was that that's not true at all. It was, it was very good food, in fact, very organic and local. So when we talk about changing our story, it's it's what we pay attention to, the meaning we invest in it, and I guess to some degree the outcome that we imagine. So that our right. imagination is really taking the light, bringing it down from the creative impulse, then bringing it down from emanation into creation, then formation, and then we take action. That's a very Kabbalistic kind of run of the worlds, which lines up with theosophy in most traditions, so that we are these multidimensional beings. And you said, well, if we recognize that our biology, our DNA, is just light, then you're saying, as many have said, that we can change our biology with our attention. Exactly. And, you know, the story which, uh, you know, if, if if I could have gotten to a medical doctor, but I was deep in the jungle, so there weren't any available, that would have been a totally different approach right. uh, to, to, to solving my problem, which probably would not have solved it in the long run. It would have solved it temporarily. Perhaps I would have taken antibiotics or something. Mm-hmm. Gotten, but I would have gone right back into it because it was a state of mind. So so by changing my dream, and, and the schwa and most indigenous people that I work with around the world are, are dream cultures. They understand that the dream, it doesn't have to just be the nighttime dream. It's our dream of the world. It's our vision of the world. It's our imagining of the world. It's our paradigm. The world is as we dream it, as we perceive it. And I think we get back to this idea of the story on a, on a communal level as a species. We've, we've brought into this story of separation, separateness. And our science 
as part of separateness. It, it picks everything apart. It goes into the separateness of it all. And our, our, our whole economy is based on separateness, and we believe we're separate. We, we are not. We are apart from, not a part of nature. This is the story we've been telling ourselves. And we're now in the process of changing that story. We're, we're really in a time in between right now, which is a rather exciting time. And I'm realizing that we need to move into a new story, that the story of separateness, separation, doesn't work. And it's not true anyway. We're not a part of, we're, we're not a part from, we are in a part of the world around us. And so we're moving into this new story, a story that, of interconnectedness, what, what my friend Charles Eisenstein says, it calls interbeing, moving into this, this new story that we, we, we must move into. Right now, we're, we're in that space between stories, which is a fascinating time, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it's so interesting to watch those, um, the, those forces that enjoy the dialectic and enjoy duality and the power of polarization um, are pushing even harder. And whether it's terrorism in the Mideast or somewhere in the world or somebody else going a little nuts and taking somebody else's life, it's, it's, it's this um, kind of grandiose last, last gasp of selfishness. So you, you do a beautiful job in talking about Aruba. And this is just one good example of a place that you and others are, um, showing that these things we talk about, sustainability and water cycles and, and you know, cosmic energy giving us everything, which is true, <laughs> um, that it's possible to watch these things manifest now. This isn't a dream that's going to happen in a thousand years. We're talking about making changes now. So tell us the Aruba story. Well, you know, I'm, I'm blessed, I think, to, to, to be able to travel to many places uh, where lots going on. And I think the little countries of the world now are, are teaching the big countries something. You know, the big countries like the United States, Russia, China, are failing us in, in, in the story of interconnectedness. It's the smaller countries that are getting it. Ecuador, Iceland, Nicaragua, there's, there's so many that I could, could list. But Aruba's a fascinating one. I was just there about a month ago, and Aruba drinks the ocean. Everybody in Aruba drinks salt water. They desalinate it. But it's the best water I've ever tasted in my life. I call it the champagne of water. And I think, you know, that's the future for the world, really. And, yeah. and they're learning that you can grow incredible plants in saltwater marshes. You, you don't need fresh water to grow food. Uh, you can do it in salt water. And a third of their, their energy, their capacity, comes from wind. So here's this little country that's taking this leadership role in showing us how we can get better water. And, you know... Um, Washington, D.C., Baltimore area, where you are, that water's foul. Yes, it is. <laughs> the, people, the people from Aruba could teach you to have much better tasting water, and you wouldn't have to worry about drought. You can get it right from the ocean. And that's true everywhere in the United States. In Boston, Chicago, New York, Miami, Los Angeles, the water's foul. Mm-hmm. And then there's so many parts of the world that, that where the, the fresh water is drying up anywhere where they can't get fresh water. The China and India are threatened by that with the melting glaciers. So Aruba has a tremendous uh, role to play in serving a model in that area. Nicaragua is going to uh, sustainable energy very, very quickly, faster than anybody else. Uh, Ecuador is teaching us things about how we can do away with debt and create new forms of money. 
some of these smaller countries are, are taking a tremendous leadership role now, and it's just it's we just need to wake up and, and listen to them mm-hmm. and hear and learn from them. It, and it's so interesting returning to the indigenous shamanistic cultures and the preservation of these ancient, ancient oral traditions and that the elders from all walks of life and all directions of the globe are are speaking out now of their story, which is, it's just so interesting to watch things that my husband and I said decades ago, you know, that the indigenous people will be the teachers of the world. And people would think, what are you talking about? Yeah, you, exactly. you know, they, it, it seems strange to people. Or when I used to say terrorism will bring the world together and they think, well, yeah. that's ridiculous. Or that earth changes, the climate change will bring the world together. So in Kabbalah, we call this, or in the Hasidic tradition, we call this being pushed from behind. Um, huh? we, we can change through suffering or we can change through joy. And what you, what I think anybody who's ever worked in the inner realm of themselves um, knows that you can do a, a great deal just sitting where you are. So we're going to take our last break, and then I want to talk to you about that. Because oftentimes people, you know, we have many elders that listen to our program who may no longer feel like in the prime of their life they're not going to run out there and go dig up the city um, parks for the planting, but they can do something else about planting good thoughts and planting prayers. And so I'd like to talk about what we do when we have some spare time, even sitting in a car, that can be of service to the world. If you've just joined us, I'm Zoe Hieronymus. John Perkins is our guest, a remarkable man. He does great things, and we'll have a chance to also talk about his beautiful organizations when we return. Hello, this is Allison Stevens from Heifer International. You can find out more about Heifer International at www.heiferhei. FER.org, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Thank you, Dr. Zoh, for your time tonight. I really enjoyed sharing our mission. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. John Perkins joins us. He's written numerous books. I encourage you to visit his website, www.johnperkins.org, and uh, pay special attention to psychonavigation techniques for travel beyond time shape-shifting techniques for global and personal transformation, and a new one about a great stress-free habit. So, John, I want to come back to before the break when people feel so overwhelmed by the enormous change that we are all called to be part of, each in our own small way. No, None of us are going to do this alone. We're all going to do it together. How can an individual who feels they have no extra time, they're not going to workshops, they're not going to meditate, but they want to be uh, an agent of change, what can they do? Well, it's a, you know, it's a really a very personal thing. I think, uh, uh, first of all, there's, there's, a, there's a generic answer, and that is to recognize that it's the corporations that are running the world. It, it isn't politicians. And we, we vote for politicians, and then they do what their corporate masters who, who provide their campaign financing tell them to do. And we need to keep putting pressure on, on politicians. So if people are interested in working through politics, they certainly encourage that. But also to understand that corporations are behind all of this, and so everybody can get involved in, in, in changing corporations because the marketplace is a democracy. If we choose to use it as such, every time we buy something or decide not to, or invest in a pension plan or, or mutual fund or directly in stock, we're supporting. We're, we're, we're casting a vote in essence. And so, you know, anybody can, in this day and age, with 
computers and in the internet the way it is can can organize a consumer campaign. And if you've got something against Monsanto or Exxon or Walmart or Nike, uh, you can organize a campaign very very easily. You know, emailing, texting, whatever, ten twenty people two or three times a week and asking them to email ten twenty people and send out a, you know a, a, an email. And, and the corporations listen. If you tell Nike, I love your products, but I'm not buying them anymore until you pay your laborers in Indonesia a living wage, and they get enough of these emails, they're going to listen because we're their clients and, and their investors. So that's a generic answer. Beyond that is the person, the more personal. I mean, we can all do that and, and should. Beyond that uh, is uh, everybody should follow his or her own passion, and I don't know what uh, you know. Everybody who's listening, what their what their passion is, or what their skills are. But I know that everybody has skills and passion, and if we all follow them and but head for that same destination, mm-hmm. creating a world that we want our children and our grandchildren to inherit an environmentally sustainable, socially just, spiritually fulfilling world. If we all head to that same destination, we'll get there. Oh, man. So someone's a carpenter. They build, you know, houses and whatever they're making with with as much social consciousness and environmental consciousness as possible. A dentist can talk to his patients, probably cut his hands in their mouth. You know, a a, a housewife brings her children up this way. We all have something to perform. People who are retired, I, I often talk to, to people who are retired and say, hey, you know, how much tennis or golf or whatever can you play? It's time to get out there and, you know, shake the cage a little bit. You can't be fired anymore. So write letters, send emails, mentor young people. Uh, There's a role for all of us, but each, each person should look to his or her individual passions and skills and follow those because that's the only way we ultimately are successful and avoid burnout. One of the um, areas that you have such this um, beautiful capacity now to share with others around the world comes from the shamanistic tradition and the mystery traditions, which is to use our inner, um, Ingo Swan used to call them biomind superpowers. So people have all different names for them, but it's our ability that it's non-local and outside time and space. And I'd like to use what little time we have left to talk about this as one of the important tools, not only for changing ourselves, maybe discovering we, things we didn't know about ourselves from this life, another life, a future life, uh, or something we just didn't realize that we cared so much about. But if we just looked a little closer, we'd find something that's a mystery to ourselves. So talk to us a bit, John, about psychonavigation and, and how we literally can journey anywhere and anytime um, that we choose to. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's a it's it's no secret, but our science and, and, and modern industry is often trying to discourage people from understanding that the power that we have to shape shift, to psychonavigate, uh, and yet the story after story after story of how incredibly powerful this is, and I think we all know it, and I think that deep in our hearts we, we know that, that in fact, the world is as we dream it. Every one of us has experienced that when we really want something, when we give it energy, we get it. And sometimes we, we, we do that with things we don't really want. They're a fantasy. They're something we think we want, but when we actually get it, we say, God, why did I, you know, why did I, 
why did I get that? And then you realize you gave it energy. You journeyed into it. And we can use that. And so it's important to give energy to the things we know we really want, not just the fantasies. And we can, we can enjoy those on the kind of shamanic level, but we don't want them to actually materialize in this world. And, you know, we can truly, truly see this, too, on, on a global level. If, if we are convinced that the world is filled with, filled with enemies, that there's all them out there, the terrorists, the people who are, who are trying to destroy us, and then we're going to create a world of violence. We're going to create, continue to have this, this death economy, a war economy. But if we truly understand that we are all living on a very fragile space station, that unlike the one our astronaut built, has no shuttles, we can't get off, and everybody's in it, but whether, whether you're, you're Muslim living in the Middle East and a member of ISIS or whether you're here in the United States, we're all facing the same dilemma. And if we can come together and realize that the solution to this is love, it's truly to create a new story that's about love. And one of the organizations I founded, Dream Change, is having a huge, beautiful love summit for corporate executives to teach that the way to have successful business is through compassion, uh, through performing a public interest. And, and that exactly grew out of this journey process, this dream-changing process of realizing that it is going to be love and compassion that will create the new story, the story of, of, of intervening, interconnectedness, that we, that we know now that we must connect if we're going to survive, that we must complete if we're going to survive as a species. It's a phenomenal time for this, and to recognize that it is this inner journey that also becomes the outer journey. There's really no, no separation uh, between them. It, it, you know, and, and that's been one of the interesting things coming out of sort of that New Age movement uh, that started in the 60s with the Pluto and Leo, um, when everybody was sort of this open heartedness. And we now have Jupiter and Leo, which is great because it expands everybody's yeah. heart. But we also have this extraordinary square between Pluto and Uranus that um, is bringing transformation so quickly and um, with such um, unexpectedness sometimes that oftentimes people want to grab on to the old when the old isn't what's stable. So share with us, if you don't mind, just some guidance about how we can create even internal um, places to go or places we've seen that we love, um, a beach, a place in the mountains, and, and why these places, when we bring them to mind, actually strengthen us and reconnect our soul and spirit to the spirit of the land. Tremendous power in all of that. And I think what you said at the beginning about the planetary alignments, you know, we're, we're truly entering the age of Aquarius now. Um, and we, we got a piece of it back in the 60s, and now we're really, we're really going into it. And every indigenous culture that, that I've ever worked with or studied with or been with, and, and I've done that with indigenous cultures on every continent except Antarctica, where there aren't any, um, tells us that we've entered this time for the potential for a huge transformation uh, to a, a, a change of consciousness, basically, in, in human beings. And, yeah, you know, I think that it's for each individual, uh, to recognize that you have that there's a sacred place in you, and or there's a lot of them that you can go to at any given moment. Whenever there's a problem that you can seek advice, there the advice will come. Some place within you that you can just journey to. You can call it meditation. You can call it psychonavigation. But you go into this this place.
place where you feel absolutely safe and secure. And while you're in a space, you can call on help, and, and you'll get it. Um, it. It comes. You know, I've, I've taught this to corporate CEOs. I saw it to new age people. I saw it to all kinds of people. It's very, very powerful. The information is there. You know, a, a, a renowned scientist, Thomas Edison, one time said, um, I didn't invent the light bulb. The idea was out there. I just tuned into it. And, in fact, if you go to his laboratory uh, in Florida, where he had two laboratories, one in New Jersey, one in Florida, I've been to the one in Florida, you, you see this laboratory of all these glass vials and test tubes and all this stuff. But then the guide will take you in and say, that now I want to take you to the most important part of this laboratory. It's a little room outside with a cot. And every day for 20 to 30 minutes, Edison would go in there and psychonavigate. Mm -hmm. And that's where he got his ideas. Uh, and he said, you know, what, what happened in, in that little room was the foundation for everything that he then put into physical form in the laboratory. It's the old shamanic idea that you journey to other worlds, which is what he did in that room, and you use power, energy, and wisdom to affect change in this world. And he did that uh, through the energy of his laboratory. Mm -hmm. We all have that ability in whatever it is we do. Every writer, every musician, every artist, every creative person knows that to really produce good stuff, you've got to go to those other worlds. You know, the great um, writer Homer, uh, you know, the great writer Homer always began all of his poems by saying, oh, muse, you know, inspire me, uh, bring me what I need to know in order to create this story. Uh, it, it's calling in, the, it's being inspired, which means being in spirit, calling in spirit. It's, it's imagination, and that comes from the word I magus, which means I, the magician, I, the shaman, I, I am the magician, I imagine. Um, imagination, thought, all of these things come to us from this other realm. And if we practice this ability to tune into that and ask for what it is we need, we get it. Exactly. Exactly. And it always comes back. It's been interesting to me for 25, almost 30 years now, interviewing all these quantum physicists and technical, you know, scientists. And then you interview the spiritists and the meditators and it doesn't matter what field of work people have come from, from our vantage point on 21st century radio almost 30 years now, it's unity consciousness, as you pointed out. And interestingly enough, in prophecy, the cornerstone in Judaism of prophecy is humility. And the other two aspects of it are courage and imagination. And as you know from your shamanic work, I mean, you can enter realms and worlds and see things you think are just, you know, oh, that's Hollywood imaginings. And then you realize that, no, it was the artist actually picking something up that does exist in other spectrums. And so this this multidimensional world that you can enter um, is so vast that our culture, I feel, unfortunately, has scared everybody from with Hollywood images that are so destructive, rather than knowing there's such great love, such great peace, such great wisdom, and so many beautiful elder beings on the other side, and ascended masters who want to help us, that I really encourage everybody to sort of try to get rid of that fear of what you can't see, and ask with love that what you can't see come to you. And it's really about what we ask for and what we accept, isn't it, John, in large measure? I totally agree. And, you know, a, a, a real indication of what you said about the, the fear-mongering of Hollywood is the, the prophecy of 2012, which Hollywood interpreted as doomsday, you know, the apocalypse and yeah. all this. I've been 
working with, studying with, hanging out with Mayan shamans since the 70s, and they always said that this new era that we are entering, that was marked by December 21st, 2012, is an era for the opportunity for tremendous positive change. It's not about doomsday. Hollywood turned it into something very different from what the ancient text, the Popovul of the Maya say. And incidentally, every year I take people, a group of around 20 people, uh, to, to, to hang out with, to spend time with the Mayan shamans in the sacred sites of Guatemala. And also this year, and that's in January of 2016, the next one, and, and, I, and I do one to uh, the Kogi people, the elder brother, these very, very powerful uh, shamanic peoples in the, in the mountains of Colombia, right on the Caribbean coast. I do that trip in January, and if people go to johnperkins.org, they can come and join me. I, I wish you'd come and join me for how on one of these trips. Uh, it, it, it's phenomenal. I think uh, I'm going to have to fly there in my spirit body. I'm not much for moving the physical one around <laughs> these days. Well, I, I, I'm sure you do that very well, too. Yeah. I do that better, actually, than actually physically flying my body. Well, your work is beautiful, and I see May 6th through the 9th, you have a beautiful um, The Age of Enoughism, and that's in Zurich, Switzerland. I mean, John, you definitely get around the world, and um, if there's a closing thought you'd like to leave our audience with, and I thank you you in advance for crediting me with the banner of the life economy and death economy because it's true i mean when i spoke to you spirit inspired me that this man travels the world and really can make use of this insight so thank you i yep. really really humbly well, thank you thank you you're welcome and thank you very much because yeah it's a major part of my new book which will be coming out sometime in the next 18 months good uh and the, the closing thought is just that i i you know I think we live in the most incredible time in human history. It's the greatest revolution that human beings have ever experienced. But we're living in a time that's much bigger than the agricultural or industrial revolutions. It's a consciousness revolution. Uh, people are waking up across the planet. And, and now it's time to take action and to enjoy it, to understand that this is an amazing, incredible time. And it's important to really enjoy this. To, I agree. To understand that. We're going to have to say goodnight with love to John Perkins, www.johnperkins.org. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus.